Our uh, first reading today uh, comes from Genesis 1, verses 1 and 2. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Our uh, second scripture reading uh, comes from Revelation, the book of Revelation. So uh, starting at the beginning and then going all the way to the end. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heavens and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more. For the former things have passed away. Uh, so last week uh, we began our series on the Holy Spirit uh, in the Old Testament. And uh, uh, one of the, in, in that sermon, uh, I made a point to emphasize how often we find the Holy Spirit. Uh, far from a few random hints here and there, the Spirit is actually a major theme of the Old Testament. Of course, the difficulty for us is that the word spirit can refer to uh, several things, breath, wind, uh, it can mean a spirit in general, or even like the capital S, Holy Spirit. Uh, so uh, the point I was making, though, is that actually reveals uh, that the presence of the spirit is hidden in an ordinary, uh, in the ordinary. And so it's often uh, left for those to, uh, with ears to hear and eyes to see. And so the burden of our sermon series is going to be to look through the Old Testament so that we can more sharply define the Spirit and its works and uh, thus be better discerners of the Spirit. Uh, today we are going to look at, at a great passage, one of my favorites. This is one of the, the, first, the first place in the Old Testament where the Spirit makes an appearance. Uh, the Holy Spirit is actually mentioned in the second verse in the Bible, uh, the second verse of Genesis 1-2. Um, but before we look at this passage, I think it's important uh, that we enter into the context or the thought world of this passage. Uh, so, so I believe that the Bible is the word of God that is inspired by God. However, I also believe that God uh, chose to communicate his word through ancient Israelites. And those ancient Israelites were part of a particular culture at a particular time with a particular history. And so unsurprisingly, they thought in a particular context. The context is very different uh, from ours. It's not the same at all. So if we want to understand what an ancient Israelite means, we have to uh, enter that thought world. And part of that understand, involves understanding that the uh, Israelites were uh, interacting with a larger uh, culture, uh, an ancient Near Eastern culture, and their concepts and their words were all part of that culture. So just like, and that's no different than us. Uh, for instance, if I say uh, uh, something is the bomb, uh, you know that I am interacting and borrowing from uh, the 1990s. Uh, the phrase is particular to that context. 
it doesn't mean the same thing as someone living before the 90s. Uh, and it requires some effort even on parts of people living after the 90s to understand the intent. Uh, the, the Matthews boys aren't here, but I frequently would say something about being the bomb and uh, they would just kind of look at me funny and, and they've since uh, associated uh, that phrase with me uh, because they realize it's a product of a different time. Uh, likewise, when we read Genesis, we are dealing with a pre-scientific culture that expressed their ideas about the origin of the cosmos in the form of myth. Uh, we think of myth as mostly religious texts because they deal with gods and the supernatural, but it was much more fundamental to the people in the ancient world is that. They would not have had uh, that nice uh, separation uh, that we do between the religious and the secular. It would be more like science is to us. Uh, we may not know uh, all the details of uh, contemporary uh, ideas about cosmology, but concepts like atoms, the solar system, and expanding universe, black holes, they're all part of our thought world and our understanding of the cosmos. Um, so let's pretend for a minute that we are an ancient Babylonian, maybe living during the time of uh, Hammurabi around 1800 BC. And here's what you would know about your world. You live in one of a number of surrounding urban areas. Your city is very organized with a hierarchy and everybody has a place and a profession in that hierarchy. Uh, there are even people who keep track of business transactions and good and services using this newfangled thing called writing. Uh, the order and prosperity of your city is based on agriculture derived from irrigation and the periodic flooding of the rivers, uh, the, the Tigris and the Euphrates. Uh, these agricultural practices are administered by the rulers and directed by the priest who use the signs or omens in the stars to know the proper times for praying the grain. Uh, maybe you yourself barter for grain because you feed uh, to the sheep you raise. Uh, however, you know not everything is prosperity and order. Sometimes the floods do not come and food is scarce. There's a drought. Sometimes there's too many flood or there's too much water and it floods and it causes devastation. You've even heard uh, stories about an incredibly large flood that happened long ago that destroyed much of everything. Now, outside of your city lay the desert where nothing grows. To the south is a sea which is made of worthless salt water. And you've heard of ships that have ventured out there and they've either re were wrecked by thunderstorms or they never return. So when you sat around in your house and your grandparents told you a story about the origin of the universe and said it was the result of the conquest of a sea serpent named Tiamat, who was uh, composed of the chaotic, disordered, and dangerous salt water, like that ocean to the south of you, and that that sea serpent Tiamat was defeated by the god Marduk, who incidentally had a huge temple in the center of your city, and that what Marduk did after defeating that serpent was brought order and regularity, like the irrigation and planning schedules that made it possible for you to have this great life, this totally, this story made total sense to you. 
And it's this thought world that Genesis 1 is part of because Genesis is in dialogue with these ideas. The, 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 the uh, Genesis story is using some of these concepts and challenging others. So if we are to understand the creation story in Genesis, we have to understand the world that Genesis is responding to. In other words, we can't look at our own concepts of expanding universe and atoms and uh, evolutionary theory and try to get anything out of Genesis. It's not trying to uh, respond. It's not in dialogue with that world. So if we turn to Genesis 1, we already, uh, well, uh, let me let me back up here. Okay, so uh, in the ancient Near East, creation myths often began with the pre-existence of chaos, uh, which is typically represented by water. Uh, in the story, the Babylonian story, it's this uh, sea goddess, this sea serpent named Tiamat. And it's out of this pre-existing chaos that the gods in the world arise from. Uh, the ancients really didn't have a concept of nothing because materiality really wasn't as important to them as it was of us. We're, we're, uh, because, you know, the physical world and science, that, that's our background. Uh, things like material are, are, are very important to us. But for the ancients, it was about order and disorder. Uh, so chaos and disorder was the primal state and creation meant order. Therefore, lots of ancient myths began with the primordial sea, which was what was identified with disorder. Now, if we turn to Genesis 1, we already come across a big contrast with these other stories. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Genesis 1 tells us that God was at the beginning. In other words, God is primary and not chaos and order. And disorder. And so this would have been a striking difference to anyone living in the ancient Near East. As soon as they heard those words, they would have instantly been like, whoa, okay, this is different. Um, now, as the account continues, though, we do encounter uh, chaos and disorder. Verse 2 describes the earth as without form, meaning it didn't have any order to it, and void, meaning it's empty. I always like that. I'm always the Hebrew word for this is tohu vabohu. I always like that. I just think it sounds nice. The the rhyming you just don't get that in your translation. But basically, the world is chaos and emptiness, and that would have resonated with these people in the ancient world. That was what they were used to thinking about in their creation myths. Chaos and emptiness was the bad thing. In other words, the world is disordered and empty, like the chaotic waters. Uh, the rest of the Genesis story is explaining how God solves that problem of disorder and emptiness. First, by separating the chaos into areas of light and darkness and land and sky and land and water, and then filling those spaces with things like plants, animals, and trees. That's basically what the Genesis 1 creation story is all about. So now, whereas there was formlessness, there is form. In life where there was emptiness. So tohu vabohu has been reversed. That's the story of Genesis 1. Now, in those ancient Near Eastern creation stories, what happened in the creation myth is, is that a hero god fought and conquered the chaos and established order. 
For example, in our Babylonian story, um, and if, if you're curious to look this up, I'm, I'm simplifying this quite a bit, but there's an epic called the Enuma Elish, uh, and that's where I'm getting most of this from. But in that story, the hero, the hero god Marduk fights the sea goddess Tiamat, and he traps her in like uh, using the four winds, kind of like a net. And then he challenges Tiamat in a single combat, and ultimately he shoots her in the heart with an arrow. And after defeating Tiamat, Marduk fillets her uh, to make the land in the sky and then goes out to establish order. He creates the constellations, day and night, the moon, the clouds, the rains, and the uh, rivers. Um, So you can see echoes of the Genesis 1 story, and that shouldn't be surprising, once again, because the Genesis 1 story is in dialogue with these epics. Now, in the Genesis account, what's different again is there is no battle. So, so Marduk has to actually fight Tiamat. In, in, in the story of the Enuma Elish, this is like the, a major big deal. Um, but this is in sharp contrast to the other ancient Near Eastern stories. In the Genesis stories, chaos is easily controlled by God, simply uh, by speaking his word. However, um, our focus today is on the Holy Spirit. And so what I want to do is turn our attention to the verse in which we first encounter the Holy Spirit. That's verse 2. Verse 2 describes the state of the earth before God began ordering it. It was void and without form, and darkness covered the face of the deep. And it's at this point that the Spirit of God hovers over the face of the deep. Now, uh, the spirit here is that Hebrew word that we know and love, ruach, okay? We'll keep hearing that over and over again. Uh, Everybody's going to know like five Hebrew words if they go to Resurrection Church for uh, uh, any amount of time, and ruach will definitely be one of them. Um, Now, if you have some translations, uh, most translations use spirit, but some will actually call it the wind of God, but we understand why, because we know that the ruach is ambiguous, but... It seems pretty clear that since the Spirit, it's not just the Spirit, it's not just the Ruach, it's the Ruach of God that we are talking about the Holy Spirit here. So then the question becomes, what is the Holy Spirit doing here? Uh, God's getting ready to speak everything into existence. So why introduce the Holy Spirit hovering? Is the Holy Spirit just kind of hanging out here? And that is what I want to focus the rest of the sermon on, because it makes a really incredible point about the role of the Holy Spirit in creation. However, to really understand this point, we've got to learn some Hebrew. But I promise you, though, it's going to all be worth it. This is actually really cool. Now, we are told that the darkness is over the face of the deep. Okay, so... The first word we're going to learn is this word for deep. The word in Hebrew is tahom, which is like this incredible word. Uh, Deep is actually a decent translation, but we actually need to think of something more sinister and threatening. More like the deep abyss, you know, the abyss. It's dangerous and unknown. Like that movie, uh, uh, that James Cameron movie in 89 with uh, Ed Harris, uh, The Abyss. Okay, so the abyss is bad. It's like the middle of the ocean with a storm raging. And like the other ancient Near Eastern creation myths, what we have is the chaotic waters. So when we're talking about the deep, 
we're talking about a reference to these chaotic waters. In fact, uh, some ancient Near Eastern uh, or, or some Hebrew scholars actually think that the word Tahum derives from the name of that sea serpent, Tiamat, that we talked about earlier. And it's possible we have lots of other examples of Hebrew words that are derived from the name of deities, like the sun and the moon, for instance, in Hebrew are actually derived from uh, ancient Near Eastern de uh, deity names. Uh, in fact, we think that, you know, in Genesis 1, when God creates the sun and the moon, um, he doesn't call, it's not called the sun and the moon. It's called the greater light and lesser light. And so scholars think that that's a way to, to strip uh that 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 creation act from its uh, any idea of divinity but in any event we find to whom use very similar elsewhere in the old testament for instance noah's flood is the to whom so uh if you, you know when moses parts the sea of reeds and he drowns the egyptian army it is the to whom that does that uh, when Jonah is thrown, over, thrown overboard, he goes down into the Tahom. Uh, the Tahom is, is used uh, to describe the underworld or the place where the dead go after they die. Uh, you know, in the ancient cosmology, those chaotic waters, uh, even after they're uh, defeated by the hero god, uh, they still are, uh, are, are remain uh, in the underworld. Uh, so we even find this idea of the watery underworld of the dead in some of the Psalms. Like you'll read some of the Psalms and, and the, the person, the psalmist will want to be rescued by God from the Tahom. Uh, and by to whom they're talking about like actually death, almost like a concept of Hades or hell or something. So when we read that the Holy Spirit is hovering over the deep, we are not just to understand this is a place with a lot of water. This is a dangerous place. It's disorder. It's lifelessness and even death. In fact, after the opening line of Genesis, pretty much everything is negative. We have emptiness, disorder, darkness, death. All of these are negative concepts that threaten life and the flourishing of life. And so what we find here in verse uh, 2 is the Holy Spirit hovering over the Tahom. So the word hover here, this, this verb is rahaf. And rahaf is a rare word, but we do find it in one other place in the Old Testament. It's really helpful uh, to understand what's going on here. So that's Deuteronomy 33. And in this passage from Deuteronomy 33, so that's Deuteronomy 33, I think it's 10 and 11 if you're keeping score at home. In this passage, God is talking about caring for his people in the wilderness on their journey from Egypt to Canaan. So I'll read those verses. He found them in a desert land and in the howling waste of the wilderness. He encircled them. He cared for them. He kept them as the apple of his eye like an eagle that stirs up its nest, that hovers, there's the word rakaf, over its young. So the picture here in Deuteronomy is rakaf is like a bird guarding its nest, like guarding, you know, if you've ever, if you've ever found a nest with some baby birds in it, you know, you have to be careful because the mama bird will, will try to swoop and attack you. Uh, that's the idea of rakaf here. 
And, uh, you know, it's interesting, too, to notice that in Deuteronomy 33, it talks about the howling wastes of the wilderness. Uh, so the word for waste here is actually tohu, again, that tohu vabohu from Genesis 1-2. Um, and that, that's a pretty rare word as well. I think this is like the one of the only other places in the Old Testament where you find it. So clearly what Deuteronomy 33 is doing here is trying to make a connection between God's care for the Hebrews in the threatening chaos of the wilderness and also the creation story in Genesis 1. But the point, though, is uh, here is that the Holy Spirit is not just hanging out but hovering over these waters with the ferocity and the care and the seriousness of a mother eagle protecting her hatchlings. So the next line is where I think it gets awesome here, okay? The next line is constructed in direct parallel to the previous line. And darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. So you hear, you've got the face of the deep and the face of the waters. You have darkness in the first line, and then you have spirit of God in the next line. Uh, the two lines then, uh, because you see that parallel, they're meant to be read in reference to one another. And this, uh, this parallel, uh, having them uh, in, in con uh, sets up that, uh, like a contrast. There's an important change there. The result of the appearance of the Holy Spirit as it hovers over the chaotic waters of the deep abyss is a different word. Notice that when the, with the arrival of the Holy Spirit, we no longer have the deep or to whom, but waters. Or the Hebrew word uh, for waters is ma'im. Uh, so ma'im is a normal word, just an everyday word that we find for, for waters. It, it's very common uh, throughout the Old Testament. You know, when you're, when you're learning your Hebrew vocabulary, uh, that's one of the first words you learn because it's so common. Ma'im is good, though. Ma'im is what allows life to exist and flourish. You've got to have ma'im. You've got to have water. It's very different from the tahom, the bad uh, form of the waters, which is associated with chaos and death. Uh, in other words, what we are to understand in Genesis 1-2 is that when the Holy Spirit appears and hovers, the deep threatening abyss is transformed to the life-given waters. And this occurs merely by the presence of the Spirit. Uh, the consequence of the shift from Tahom to Maim is chaos and death have been transformed into life and flourishing. And this doesn't even happen through any kind of dramatic supernatural activity or combat or really anything at all. Merely the presence of the Holy Spirit alone is enough to make this change. It's absolutely effortless. So it would have been like a stunning thing uh, in that thought world to read. Like what? Marduk doesn't have to come and like get in this big, we don't have to read like two chapters about Marduk, uh, you know, summoning the winds and shooting an arrow or anything. No, the Holy Spirit appears instantly. We go from darkness and to home to Mayim. So right at the beginning of the Bible, in this second verse, we learn something uh, remarkable about the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit works in creation to bring about life and flourishing, just as water brings about life and flourishing. 
As a people used to having water instantly at our disposal, we probably don't even realize how incredible this verse must have been to its audience, particularly those who knew what it was like in a desert. Uh, you know, Miles and Blake and I uh, just went backpacking recently. And if you've ever been backpacking, you know, locating water is like a huge concern. You have to have a source of water to drink from or cook or anything. It's very key. Uh, you uh, Before you ever go on a backpacking trip, if you're smart, you're going to plan out your route and make sure you know where the water is. Um, we had to collect water. We had to filter. We had to make sure we had enough to cook with uh, and eventually get back to our truck. Um, all water was on our mind. Um, in those situations, you really important. You really realize the importance of access to water, and that is why the Holy Spirit is associated with water throughout the Bible. It is the ruach that blows over the sea of reeds, parting it and providing life for the Hebrews. And it's its withdrawal that unleashes the chaotic waters of death upon the Egyptian army, the Tehom. So remember in our passage last week, think about last week, we read from John chapter 3, Jesus tells Nicodemus, no one can enter the kingdom of heaven unless they are born of water and spirit. So, so, so you see that connection starting. See, what I'm trying to do here is get you into that thought world. Because it's like I said, it's not the same. We have running water. We don't really think of water in the same way. We aren't really scared uh, too much of, 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 you know, the chaotic waters of the ocean. But as the story of the Old Testament goes, we find other places where these chaotic ocean waters work as a metaphor for death. Uh, so if you remember the story in Daniel, there's a story, there's a part of Daniel where these four uh, terrible beasts who are supposed to represent uh, the, the, the kingdoms of the world that exploit and oppress the people, they all come out of the sea. They are monstrous agents of death and disorder. Uh, think too of how you might read the gospel story of Jesus calming the storm at the Sea of Galilee with this background in mind. It might be, it might be a little bit more than just a cool trick Jesus did to impress people. Uh, John uh, continues to use this image in the book of uh, Revelation. You know, the beast, the famous one with the, with the number and all that kind of stuff that comes up uh, that's like the dragon. Um, it comes from the sea. But when we reach the end of Revelation, in our second scripture reading, John presents this vision of the new heaven and new earth. And you'll notice, it, it, you might have even caught this in the reading because it sounds kind of weird to us. John specifically states that the sea is no more. Now, that seems an odd statement unless we understand the symbolic world that John is drawing from. When we understand that the sea is actually representative of the dark forces of the world, it's not like about, like when we think of the sea, I think of, I think of the beach. I think about going to the beach, you know, and that's like a good place. But that's not the world that John came from, particularly because he was probably exiled on an island. He was exiled on an island when he wrote this, so he was probably really uh, negative about the sea. But it represented the dark forces of death that threatened life and its flourishing. And so it totally makes sense that John would want to get rid of the sea and the new heaven and new earth. For John, the end of the story is a world where this threat is permanently removed. And so life is allowed to grow and flourish to its fullest extent. That is what God intends as the end point of his world. And the result will be no more death or mourning or tears 
because the old order has passed away. Disorder, chaos, and death have been completely defeated uh, by the end of Revelation. So we now see how the spirit works in the original creation and how it functions in its goal to continue to work in the new creation. The spirit is about bringing life, abundance, order, fruitfulness, and flourishing to a world that is threatened by darkness, disorder, and death. And so as a people who are filled with the spirit, and as a community of spirit-filled believers who make up the church, then we bring the spirit and therefore the presence of glory in God into the world. Uh, and we do that by doing things that promote life and abundance and fruitfulness and flourishing. Uh, we, we do this uh, exactly what the spirit is doing in Genesis. That's where we take our cue from. So I'm not going to end this sermon with a nice, neat conclusion. What I'm going to actually do is leave it as a cliffhanger instead. So in the next few weeks, uh, we're going to do a little more uh, introduction, but in the next few weeks, what we're going to do is look at places in the Old Testament uh, where uh, this work, this work of bringing life and abundance and flourishing uh, takes place through the work of the Spirit. Uh, remember what we talked about last week, the Spirit can be subtle as well as dramatic. It can be ordinary as well as extraordinary. It's like the wind. You don't know where it comes from or where it may go. And so what we're going to do is look at some of these different ways. But, um, however, whatever form the Spirit does take, the result will be the transformation to the good goal of God that he intends for his creation and his people. It will be the transformation of Tahom to Mayim, of death and disorder to life and, and order.